And so just to remind you, Paul visited Corinth. He started a church there. He left, and then he wrote him a letter. But that first letter kind of caused a couple little issues. It caused some problems. And so he decided to make a personal visit. And then when he made the personal visit, he uh, got opposed by some other people and really got wounded and hurt. He took it personally, and he ran away and vowed to never visit them again. When he was up north in Macedonia, he wrote them another letter that was a hard letter. So painful, in fact, that no one decided to keep it until this day, that we still don't have it. So he wrote them this hard letter, and they responded positively to that. And so now he's giving them another chance. He is now getting ready to visit them for the third time. Hopefully, this third visit is going to be a good visit. And to to prepare them for this third visit, he's writing them a third letter. We call it 2 Corinthians. Now, there might have been another letter or so in there. Maybe there's as many as four or six letters of exchange. But this is the third one that we know about. And yet, we call it 2 Corinthians because we only have the first one and we have the third one. And so, since the third one is our second one, we call it second. So anyway, uh, hopefully that, co- that confused you all just better. But so here's Paul and he's writing his third letter to them, what we call second Corinthians, and he's getting ready to make a third visit. Now, the big theme of this is that Paul is a broken person. He's a wounded person. He's a hurting person. And so part of this letter is him writing to a church that wounded him, writing to the church that hurt him. And he, in his pain and in his woundedness, is writing to them, trying to fix their relationship and trying to get them back on the path they need to be. He's trying to be their leader, even though they have kind of left him. He's showing them his affection, even though they won't show him love back. And so now we get to see this letter on two different levels. First of all, there's the surface level. It's the level of the narrative, the level of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And Paul is trying to fix their relationship with truth. He's bringing to them perspective. He's bringing to them truth so that they can get a better handle on why he's done what he's done and maybe their relationship can get fixed. But for you and me, there's a second layer of meaning. Because we know that Paul is wounded. We know Paul is hurt. We know he's been suffering. And throughout the whole letter, he's been giving us snippets of his own perspective on the hurt. And so we get to see the second layer of meaning, which is how does a Christian, how does a leader, how does a person who's trying to be like Jesus respond to hardship? And so Paul has given us all kinds of lessons. He's told us that whenever we face hardship and difficulty, that's one more experience for us to connect with Jesus, for us to get to know Jesus a little bit better. Because Jesus suffered for us, and so when we suffer, it helps us get connected to Jesus. A second thing that suffering does is suffering can help me bless someone else. 
Jesus' model was that he suffered for other people. And so now Paul, when Paul faces some sort of suffering or pain or hardship, he can now use that to bless the people around him. And you and I can do the same. So suffering brings us closer to Jesus. It makes us better able to bless other people. Plus, suffering is something that sometimes is needed to bring a person back to Jesus. They've been wandering away. And a little bit of pain, a little bit of hardship is the thing that brings them back to Jesus. And some Sometimes suffering can manifest itself in really practical ways, like a broken relationship or financial hardships. And Paul even has things to say about those situations. And we've covered all that ground so far, but now, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is facing the biggest challenge of them all with regard to the church in Corinth. You see, it's easy for Paul to talk about doctrine. It's easy for Paul to talk about getting your beliefs straight. It's also easy for Paul to talk about getting your behaviors straight. But there's one thing that's really hard for Paul to talk about, and that is the simple fact that they don't want to follow him. They're following other people. Because let's just be honest, Paul's a guy who's gone through a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of hardship, a whole lot of difficulty. Paul is not living very wealthy. He's, he's facing hardship from governments and from other people all the time. And just, I mean, seriously, if you want to follow a leader, if you got to pick your own leader, who would you choose? Would you choose a dude who was sickly and wounded and oppressed and always on the wrong side of the law? Would you choose a guy who is always in prison and who people don't like and he's always asking for money? Would you choose that guy to be your leader when you have so many other good leaders all around you? See, that's the question the Corinthian church has been asking ever since Paul first showed up. Paul showed up there, he started the church, he was there for a year and a half, and then he left. And every single leader who's come through that church after Paul has left has been better than Paul. Every single one of them has been more impressive than Paul. Every single one of them has a better story than Paul. And the church in Corinth has for their entire time, yeah, they've been wrong with their doctrine, they've been wrong with their behaviors, but the one thing they've always been wrong at and they've never gotten right is the idea of why should we follow a loser like Paul when we've got all these winners around us. And so Paul is writing at the end of this letter to challenge that one final idea. And he's going to challenge it in a way that a lot of us might not feel comfortable with. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 11, excuse me. I said first, I've got a lot of ones in my mind because it's 11 and 1 and all this stuff. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1. And what Paul is about to do is he's about to give a defense for why he's a better leader than all of their other leaders. And what he's going to tell them is that I am the strongest man you have ever met, even though I'm nothing. That's the basic idea of what Paul is about to tell them. And so in order to give you the reasons for why they should follow Paul, I'm just going to give you the reason first and then we're going to look at Paul's reasoning for it. Here's his first reason for why he's better than all their other leaders. Paul's number one reason is that his motives are better. Paul's motives are better than all the motives of all the other leaders. Let's take a look at it. It's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says this. 
He says, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. By the way, he will be snarky. He will be sarcastic in this chapter. Prepare for it. He says, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, first of all, my motives are better than any of these other people. And by the way, he calls them super apostles. Did you see that? That's a really interesting phrase. Paul would never use that phrase because in the Greek, that phrase can't be a sarcastic phrase. Because see, in the Greek, they never use the word super in a sarcastic way like we might use the word super because our use of the word super is just quote-unquote super. For them, it was a normal preposition. All it meant was above. That's all it meant. And so literally, the phrase super apostle means above apostles. In other words, there were people in Corinth who were using the phrase huper apostolos, to refer to themselves as being those who were above the other apostles. You've got your 12 back in Jerusalem, and then they kind of dispersed, and so now they're all over the place. Peter might be in Rome by this point in time. John might be living somewhere in Turkey or maybe back in, in, uh, in Asia Minor, somewhere around there. Uh, but, uh, and Paul, and he's not like one of the original 12, but he's still considered apostle. But anyway, these people in Corinth are now referring to themselves as the above apostles, the, the huper apostolos, the, those who were above the other apostles. And so when we translate it, we translate it using the word super apostle because we like to make fun of them because it's a good thing for us to do. Because here's some people who are calling themselves above the other apostles. And so Paul now uses their words against them. And he says, I'm not inferior to any of them. In fact, I'm better than them. And I'll tell you why. Number one, I've got a better motive. Paul says, my first motive is this. I promised you to Jesus. My motive is to get you over to Jesus. That's what Paul says. My number one motive is to bring you to Jesus. There's just a problem. There's all these other things getting in the way. So Eve was supposed to have a relationship with her heavenly father, and yet she got distracted in the Garden of Eden and tempted and led astray into some other things. And Paul's like, I'm afraid you might get led astray by some of these other super apostles. I'm afraid you might get led astray into some of this other stuff. And I need you to know that I'm jealous. I'm not jealous for you for me. I'm jealous on behalf of Jesus because Jesus bought you with his own blood and therefore you rightfully belong to him. And so it's my job to get you to him. I'm the limo driver who's taken you to your wedding. 
That's his basic idea. I am trying to get you to Jesus. I promised I would get you to him, and so I'm trying to get you there. And there's all this other stuff standing in the way. So look at his second uh, motivation here. Just keep reading verse 7. He says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. He's going to cut the ground out from underneath these super apostles. But here's his second motivation. His first thing was, I'm trying to bring you to Jesus. His second thing is, I'm trying to get out of the way. I don't want to be a burden to you. I didn't ask for your money when I was with you. I didn't do anything among you that could have distracted you from this one thing. In fact, I got money from other churches and I had people come to me from other places so that they could meet my needs so that I wouldn't be a distraction to you. This is important. Paul says, I want you so much to belong to Jesus that I have to remove all desire in your heart to follow me. I will not take your money. I will not try to impress you. I will not try to do anything that will distract you from Jesus. My motive is that you get brought to Jesus. And so as a result, I am going to step away. I am going to not be a burden. I am going to bring myself farther away from that center of the picture. Now, this is a weird thing for a leader to say. Most of us are very familiar with leaders who would say things along the lines of, I'm the leader, you're going to follow me. And you need to follow me. And so I'm going to stand right here. You're going to be there. Jesus is there. And I'm going to bring you to Jesus. And you're going to be right behind me the whole way. I'll get there first. And you get there behind me. And Paul says, no, that's not the way we're doing this. The way we're doing this is I promised you to Jesus. You're his bride. And he gets you all. And so I'm trying to not be a burden. I'm just trying to facilitate this thing. My motives are better. And that's why he attacks these super apostles. Because the super apostles are trying to be some sort of leaders of influence in the church in Corinth. Now, we haven't talked about them yet, but all throughout the book of First and Second Corinthians, you have seen the antagonists. You have seen the people who opposed Paul. You've seen the people who are trying to follow other leaders. I want to follow this guy. I want to follow that guy. You've seen that divisions all throughout them. And now Paul has given them a name. We've waited this long for Paul to give them a name, and he's using the same name they're using for themselves, the super apostles. And he has something to say about them. One, he says, I guess I'm just going to have to undercut them. I'm not worse than them, but I'm going to undercut them. And then he does. In the very next set of verses, Paul gives us our second reason to follow him, and it is because the super apostles are satanic. That's a pretty harsh word, but he says it. Look at it. Verse 13. Here we go. Verse 13. He says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. 
It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. If you've ever heard the phrase, Satan masquerades as an angel of light, this is where that comes from. It's not necessarily a doctrinal thing where Satan always tries to look like an angel of light. What it is, is Paul is saying that Satan is, a, is a, all about deception. Satan is all about deception. And so if Satan can deceive people by looking like he's something good while actually being something bad, so can his followers. And Paul says, so you think these things are good? You think these guys are good, right? You think the super apostles are pretty great? Well, guess what? Satan looks pretty good too if you look at him in the right light. These guys are his servants. Paul calls them satanic. Now, that's pretty harsh. I mean... Literally, calling someone else satanic is a pretty harsh thing to say, don't you think? I mean, that's going a little too far, Paul. Are you sure? Listen, this is what Paul is trying to get at. He says, hang on a second. It's not about me. It's not about the doctrine. It's not about these other leaders. It's all about Jesus. My desire is to get you closer to Jesus and everything in the way that will distract you or derail you is going to be satanic. Anything that is going to distract you or derail you from getting closer to Jesus can be called satanic. My job is to get you closer to him and these super apostles, at the best, they're a distraction. At the worst, they're deceptive. This is not just about Paul fighting other leaders. This is something for the soul of the people in Corinth. If they don't make it to Jesus, their souls might be lost, is almost the way Paul feels about it. He's like, my job is to get you to the one who paid for you. Why so harsh, Paul? Because it matters. Now, let's just ask ourselves the question of what these super apostles are, just a little bit. I'm going to give you a few verses. I'm going to put them up on the screen here just to identify the things that Paul calls out about these super apostles and why they're so bad. Look at it from chapter 10. He says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. He didn't use the phrase super apostles in chapter 10, but that's who he's talking about. And so back in chapter 10, he was talking about these leaders who were vying for your leadership. They were vying for the people in Corinth, for influence there, and they just compared themselves to themselves. Well, I'm better than Paul, and I'm better than that guy, and I'm better than you, and I'm better than all y'all. They were comparing themselves to each other and not to anyone else. And as a result, Paul calls them stupid. Now he doesn't call them stupid. Now he calls them satanic because they're comparing themselves against each other, which means there's no outside power from God coming into the midst. And the only thing that's going on there is what happens when human beings start looking at other human beings. That's about the time when Satan starts whispering up into our minds the things that we need to notice about the other human beings around us. And so that's not just dumb, it's also satanic. But look at the next verse from chapter 10 where he describes them. He says, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Apparently the super apostles, they swept themselves into Corinth and were like, we'll take credit for all this. Okay, so you guys, the church was started by Paul, but we're the ones who are going to now take you into maturity. And so they're kind of taking credit for what Paul had done. But keep going. In chapter 11, we just saw this. I'll highlight it again. Go to the next one. He says, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, 
or a different spirit or a different gospel. Now Paul is saying, hang on a second. The super apostles are coming into your area with new stuff. They're coming into your area and they're preaching a different Jesus than the one we preach. They're, they're giving you a different message than the one that we brought you. They're, they're bringing to you a new awareness of the Spirit than what we brought you. And then take a look at this next one. We just read it, but I'll put it up again. He says, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. And finally, we find out that the super apostles are who they are because they are slick and they are good at what they do. They're bringing the flash. They're bringing the entertainment. They're bringing the excitement. Have you guys ever watched a TED Talk? These things got really popular on YouTube fairly recently. Um, I saw a couple of them like about a decade ago before they ever made it to YouTube. But a TED Talk it used to be like the best of the best in the world of technology and entertainment and design getting together to have this conference. A ticket to the conference was $5,000. The people who spoke on the stage were only allowed to speak for about 15 minutes maximum. That's all the time they gave them. And so they had to be po- totally polished. What they had to say was, it had to be perfect. And the only people who got to stand in the red circle on that stage were the people who were exceptionally gifted at public speaking. It didn't matter what you knew. It only mattered if you were good enough to communicate. And so these TED Talk people would get there and they would just present. And so now it's gotten really super popular on the internet. A lot of people watch these things. But here's the deal. You can watch a TED Talk and at the end of it, be totally inspired that your life is so much better now and have no idea what you learned or why it was important to learn it. Because these people are such good speakers, in most cases, they're such good speakers that they can sell you on anything and you walk away feeling like, wow, that was so wonderful. What did you learn? I don't know. Was it important? No clue. But it was so good. Seriously? That's kind of the way these guys were in Corinth. They were these professional speakers. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and ask you what kind of leader you want to follow. Do you want to follow the leader who is always facing hardship and struggle and pain and frustration? Do you want to follow the leader who's thrown in prison all the time, who is beaten, he's got scars all over him, he's unimpressive when he speaks, and he's overly aggressive when he writes, and he's even on top of it sickly, and the churches that he's with generally have to care for him because he's got this physical ailment that no one can really figure out and no one really understands. Do you want to follow that guy, or do you want to follow the polished, pristine public speaker who knows how to say and what to say to help you feel the feels. Oh, and by the way, this guy over here is bringing you new information. Yeah, you heard about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's got new information about Jesus. He's got new information about the Spirit. He's got new information about this good news. Listen, if we're honest with each other, all of us would be far more inclined to follow the flash. 
I mean, when Paul shows up, he says the same thing over and over again. He's always just going on and on and on about Jesus dying for your sins and then rising again from the dead. It's just like the only thing he ever really talks about except for when he's telling you that your behavior's messed up and you need to get that squared away. But this guy over here, he's giving us new information and he does it so well. And he's so put together and he's tall and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Listen, we are the sorts of people who we fall for it all the time. And Paul says, the super apostles, they're satanic. My motives are better. And then, just to turn the dial all the way up to 11, Paul says, I'll tell you why I'm better. I'm weak. What? I'm serious. Look at it. He says this. He says this in verse uh, 16. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do... Then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. Ha ha ha. I'm going to tell you what's so good about me. In this self confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. I love Paul's sarcasm here. He's like, I'll boast, I'll boast. So you've got all these people and you're following them, all these super apostles, you're following them wherever they go and they're mistreating you, they're exploiting you, they're taking advantage of you. Some of them have even slapped you in the face. They're physically abusing you and you keep following these guys. Man alive, I'm too weak for that. And there's something in his sarcasm that just makes me like Paul more. But at the same time, I think he's telling the truth. You see, here's the, here's the thing. The reason they're following the super apostles is because they look strong. The reason they're not following Paul is because he looks weak. The accusation against him is that he is weak and he's embracing it. And he says, yeah, I'm weak. In fact, as we read the rest of this section... Paul is going to go on a tirade of boasting where he is going to list one thing after another that makes him better than the super apostles. One thing after another. And if you've heard this before, if you've been in churches before and you've read this passage before, then you know what it feels like. It feels like Paul is going down a laundry list of why he's such a better Christian than those other super apostles. A laundry list of all the reasons why he's better than any of the other leaders. And at first glance, it's all impressive, especially if you've been in churches. At first glance, it's all impressive. And it sounds like, wow, man, Paul is such a great guy. He's such a wonderful follower of Jesus. But pay attention a little bit more. And what you'll find is in every single one of them, in every single one of his statements about why he's better, he shows you that he's actually worse. His statement that he's better on the surface, it initially looks like he's really good, but you just look a little tiny bit closer and you realize he's not. You realize he's exactly the kind of guy none of us want to follow. Let, let me show you. I'll just give it to you the way he gives it to you. The first one he mentions is that he's more Jewish. All right? Let's see what he does with that one. Verse 21, second half. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking like a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? 
So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? Well, so am I. What he does here is apparently the super apostles were claiming that one of the reasons they were super apostles is that they were following in the heritage of the Jews. So that the super apostles were claiming our Jewish heritage allows us to be more impressive with all the rest of you. And so they could speak with sort of Jewish mysticism, which would have sounded very new to the people in Corinth. And so the super apostles could claim that they were Jewish, and that was a good thing. But Paul says, wait, wait a minute. They're claiming that they're Jewish? They think they're Hebrews? Well, I'm a Hebrew. They think they're Jewish? I'm Jewish. They think they're descendants of Abraham? I'm a descendant of Abraham. And if anyone is Jewish, I'm more Jewish than they are. Remember, he was a Pharisee who was at the top of the peak when it came to Jewishness. He's like, I'm more Jewish. And now you ask the question, is that really a good thing? Now, I'm not trying to say anything about our modern world, but I'm definitely saying something about our ancient world. Was Jewishness an advantage in a city like Corinth? Not really. No, see, the people in Corinth, they weren't looking for the next Jewish person to follow. They were looking for the next new idea to follow. They were paying attention to philosophers and businessmen and and, uh, political strategists and, and people like that. They weren't paying attention to some ancient religion thing. And so now for Paul to claim that he's even more Jewish, that doesn't actually gain him any points with them, does it? In fact... If we remember, it was the people who were so stuck in Judaism that they misunderstood the Old Testament that they ended up crucifying the one who came to save them. They totally missed Jesus because of their attachment to their own perspective of what the Old Testament was teaching. And the the Jewish people are still resisting that message of Jesus to this day. Why would Paul want to associate himself with that? See, at first glance, it sounds like he's really super important. And then you look just a little bit deeper and you're like, wait a minute, seriously? That's something you're boasting about? Look at, look at the next one. The next one Paul would say is that not only is he more Jewish, he also says his track record is worse. Yeah, take a look at what he says here. <laughs> it's verse uh, 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And if you've been in churches a long time, you hear Paul's list of problems here and you think to yourself, oh, Paul, what a great servant of Christ. You've sacrificed so much to be such a wonderful servant of Christ. I can totally see that you're a better servant for Christ than anyone else has ever been because you've suffered more harshly. You know, we're thinking that. We put Paul on this pedestal and we're like, oh, Paul, you're so great. But put yourself back in the mindset of the people in that day. And what did Paul just say? He just said, I'm a loser. That's what he said. He just said, listen, 
I try to do this and it fails. I try to do this and it fails. I try to do that and it fails. I try to do that and people beat me up. I try to do that and I get on a boat and it crashes. I try to do that and everything that I've done in my life has always crashed and burned. I'm a better servant of Jesus than anyone else because I've failed all over the place. On top of that, my own countrymen don't like me and the foreigners don't like me. I've been in jail, I've been flogged, I've been beaten, I've been all these things. You look at Paul and you say, okay, Paul, do I want to follow you? Do I want to follow any of that? Am I going to follow the weak person or am I going to follow the strong person? And Paul says, I'll tell you what, I'm better than the super apostles because my track record is worse. It doesn't make sense. And it even gets a little bit worse than that because the next thing he says is that his compassion has been distracting. Look at verse 28. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Oh, Paul, I want to follow a winner, not a loser. I want to follow a strong person, not a weak person. And now here you are and you're telling me you've got so much compassion for all these different churches that when one person in one church has something go wrong with him in his life, he feels weak, you feel weak. Paul, you're telling me that when one person in one church has some sort of sin failing, you tell me that you personally feel a burning in your heart for that person. What in the world, Paul? You're in leadership, you've got to grow a thick skin. In leadership, you need to let things slide off your back. In leadership, you need to stay on your track and not worry about what the other people are doing. Paul, compassion is just going to get in your way of being a good leader. See, on the surface, you and I are like, oh, it's so wonderful. Paul, you're such a great leader. But for the people back in that day, man, that compassion... Paul, you can't even pay attention to the thing that you're working on now because you're so worried about some other church, some other place. Your compassion is just too distracting. On top of that, he's also a coward. Paul would say that he has been cowardly. Take a look at the next one. Verse 30, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I know you've read the New Testament before. You've been in the book of Acts. You've seen that story where Paul gets lowered down uh, over, the, over the wall in a basket, and you just think, wow, that's such a cool story. We tell it to the kids, you know, in Sunday school or Kidopolis or children's church, whatever you've had as your experience, we tell it to kids, the story of Paul being lowered in a basket because it's always cool to have someone in the Bible who's a hero in a basket. We did it with Moses. It's good with Paul. You know, it's always this really kind of neat thing. And so we tell that story as if it's a great story. But listen, here's Paul and the king is trying to kill him and he sneaks away. What a coward. Paul, if you had the power of God on your side, you wouldn't need to sneak away. If you had the power of God on your side, you wouldn't face shipwrecks. If you had the power of God on your side, you wouldn't have to encounter all of this hardship and pain and frustration. 
Paul, isn't it obvious that you've been doing all this stuff as a loser human being? And on top of it, when things go wrong with you, you just run away. After all, that's what he did in Corinth, right? He went to Corinth for that one visit. Things didn't go well, and he just ran away to Macedonia. They've been accusing Paul of being a coward, and he says it. He says it. Yeah, look at this other time I ran away. Oh. And now we come to this passage. And this passage is... For those people who've, who've been in the church for a long time, this passage is one of those glorious passages. You know, one of those passages where you read it and you're just like, oh, Paul, you're such a great guy. You're so wonderful. I wish I could be like you. I mean, your experiences are just so wonderful. I wish I could have this. But you need to know something. Paul is about to tell us a story about himself, a story that is so on the surface good, so good on the surface that he won't even put his own name to it. Instead, he takes the approach of, I have a friend who, you know, you and I usually do the I have a friend who thing when it's a bad thing. You know, here's a person, you just made a super bad mistake and then you call the counselor and you're like, I have a friend who did that. And everybody knows you're talking about yourself. Well, Paul flips it. He's got something that's so good, so good in his life that he's afraid if you attached it to him, you might get the wrong idea. You might think Paul is cool. And Paul doesn't want you to think he's cool. And so he tells the good story in someone else's words. Look at what he says, verse 1, chapter 12. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself. You'll know that because in a few minutes, Paul will say, because of these surpassingly great revelations that I have had. He refers to his own revelations later on in this paragraph. But right now he says, I know a man who. Because he doesn't want you to associate a good thing with him. He is about to reframe what we think is a good thing so that we will realize it's not that good. But I do have to just pause here real quick. He does make a reference to being taken up into the third heaven. And so sometimes Christians get all like super spiritual about this. And they're like, wow, the third heaven. I wonder what the first heaven was like. And then the second. Wow. No, no. Okay, so here's the deal. Back in the ancient world, they didn't have a word for heaven that was separate from the word for sky. It was just uranus. It was the thing above you. And so here you go. If you want heaven number one, that's what you're breathing. If you want heaven number two, that's where the stars are burning. And if you want heaven number three, well, I don't know where that is. It's just somewhere where God is. And so there you go. The third heaven is just the, the, the place where God is. And the other things are just, you know, they're just words that we have the same word for. But so anyway, he says he was caught up to being in God's presence. And then he just admits that he's totally confused about the whole event. He says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, 
In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Listen, Paul talks about this incredible vision that he had. And you might think it was a good thing, but his words are, I don't even know if I was in the body. I don't really know what happened. It was inexpressible. I can't even bring back down to earth in words what I experienced. Clearly, he had an amazing experience. Clearly, that experience was powerful in his life. Clearly, that experience 14 years ago had given him some sort of internal strength that maybe you and I wish we had. And clearly, his experience was something grandiose and something I have often longed for, and yet, he won't even claim it for himself because as a result of that experience, he now is facing incredible suffering. He says, God gave me an incredible experience, but I also now, as a result, to keep me humble, have a messenger from Satan who's been sent to torment me. I can't even tell you what the experience was like. I can't even tell you what I learned from the experience. I can't put any amount of that experience into words, but I can tell you this. I'm in pain every day because God wants to keep me humble. And if that's not enough, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul, I don't know if I want to follow a guy who can't get God to answer his prayers. Sure, you had a really cool experience, but you can't even tell me about it. Sure, you had a cool experience, but you don't even know if it was even really you. I don't know, Paul. I don't think I want to follow someone that weak. I want to follow someone who, when they speak, they speak with strength. I want to follow one of those guys with the S on his chest who stands forward and he just saves my day. Paul, I don't know. And so he says, look at what he says next. He says he's got to depend on Christ. He's not even strong enough to depend on himself. He has to depend on Christ. Verse 9. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul, you're too weak for us to follow you. Paul says, you better believe it. You absolutely better believe it. You call me weak, I'm embracing it. You insult me, I'm embracing it. You want to follow the super apostles? Well, I'm going to let you know they are satanic, and here's how you know. Look how bad I am. Look how weak I am. Because what you find in my life, Paul would say, is one continuous strain of hardship and frustration. And so now, standing here before you, I have to say, I'm just trusting God. I'm just relying on God. I'm putting God at the number one spot in my life. 
I am emptied of myself, and it's all about him. I can't even get him to answer my prayer other than him saying, I'll just be with you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, all right then. I'm going to play up this weakness. I'm going to play up this weak angle. And I'm going to let everybody know that my weakness is where it is. So that if God shows up, they all know it's God. Take a look at the next couple verses here. Verse 11 through 13. Because he does something pretty amazing here. He says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I've ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. See, what Paul does there at the end What Paul does there at the end is he says, hang on a second here. I'm not inferior to those other apostles. What I am is nothing. That's a a weird way to compare yourself to someone else, isn't it? I'm not, in fact, he didn't even say he was better than them, did he? I mean, we've kind of been taking it that way as if Paul has been trying to convince the Corinthians that he's a better leader to follow, but it's in fact something different entirely. He says, he says I'm a nothing apostle. You want to follow some super apostles? I tell you what, my shirt has a big N on it. I'm just, I'm just your nothing apostle. My job is to take you from where you are and point you towards Jesus and get out of the way. My job is to be your nothing apostle. You don't need any of these super apostles. Because Paul would say, God's power is revealed in my weakness. Take another look at all the list of things that Paul gave. Remember, in the Christian way of thinking, we can look at all of those things and say they're good things. And then you look at them a little bit more deeply and you say, no, that's actually a bad thing. But now, look at it from the perspective of God's power being made perfect in weakness, and you see every one of them get flipped. So Paul, he was a Jew, right? He was one of the greatest of all the Jews. He was one of the top Jews. He was actually persecuting Christians. And his Jewishness was on display for everybody. And God says, guess what? I'll turn that around. And so God's power transforms transformed Paul from being an anti-Christian into being a Christian. God's power showed up there. Look at his sufferings and his hardships and all of his track record of failure. He was stoned almost to death. And guess what? God brought him back to life. And so in every one of those cases, even though he was shipwrecked, he was also saved. In every one of those cases, God's power showed up in the middle of it. And so even though Paul can say, I've had failure after failure after failure, he can all also say God's had success after success after success. And in my life, God has proven successful time and time again, even when I have failed. And so guess what? I'll just let you see all my weaknesses. Because if I'm a nothing, then you get to see straight through me and see the God behind me. See the God who's in me. See the God who's doing the work in my life. Our goal should not be to stand in front of people and say, follow me. Our goal 
is to get out of the way of people and help them get to Jesus. And so Paul says, that's why I'm your apostle, because I'm nothing. I want to give you a couple ways to take this home. There are a couple different lessons that I think we can learn from this. Obviously, there's the top-level lesson, there's the surface lesson of how should we perceive our leaders? What kind of leader do you want in your life? Obviously, that's the top one because Paul is spending this whole chapter and a half talking about the difference between the super apostles and him. And so I want to just remind you that we are entering into a new season of choosing leaders. In fact, this week and next week, we're going to begin the whole season of presidential debates. I didn't think we would get there this soon, but here we are. We're beginning the whole season of presidential candidacy debates all over again. And so in just over a year, we're going to be choosing our next president, choosing our next set of leaders. And we live in this weird environment where we get to choose our leaders. And so perhaps there's something in this lesson that we've looked at today that could indicate to us what kind of leaders we might be choosing, what kind of leader would be a good leader to choose. And so Paul would say, pick a nothing leader. Those are the leaders you want to have. And it's hard for us to find them, so I'm also going to give it to you in Jesus' words. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. He says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, he says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, I'll just be blunt. If you want a godly leader, you vote for a servant. Not a person who used to serve and now leads. Not a person who understands service and so leads that way. A person who is actively, as they are leading, serving because they aren't actually leading, they're just serving. Jesus says, that's the kind of leader that Christians should be looking after. But it's actually better than that. I want to invite you to put at the top of your leadership list, Jesus himself. Maybe today you're here and you haven't made that commitment. You haven't made the commitment to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. But guess what? Jesus is the best servant of all. He's the one who died for you and came back to life. So a person who sacrifices his own life for you and is still around to do things for you, man alive. That's someone that you actually really want to follow. Put Jesus at the top of your list. You can do that today. If you've never done it before, just say, Jesus, you're at the top of my list. I will follow you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. I will follow you wherever you go go, what's my next step? And then you talk to someone around here and we'll help you find your next step. But here's the deal. Put Jesus at the top. Number two, I would say put the New Testament writers just under Jesus. Because Paul, as the nothing apostle, is the kind of person you want to have pushing you towards Jesus. And so let's embrace the other nothing apostles that are in the New Testament, because all the rest of them are trying to be humble, just like Paul, pointing you to Jesus. And so I would encourage you to embrace all of the writings of the New Testament and say, I'm going to follow those things, and they will get me closer to Jesus. So there you go. Eventually, then, maybe it will involve voting for someone. I don't, I don't even know about that. That's far less important. But I will say this. The leaders you should have in your life need to be leaders like Paul. Need to be nothing leaders, servant leaders, who just simply point you to Jesus. But there's a, one more thing I have to address. See, on the one hand, it's the question of who do I want to follow. On the other hand, it's the question of who do I want to be. When I was a kid, I really wanted to be Superman. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Batman is cooler. 
He is. On the coolness scale, Batman wins all the time. I mean, he's got those toys and the just everything, and he's got spikes on his head. If you're going to wear some sort of like superhero uniform, I would always want to choose spikes on the head and Kevlar vest instead of tights and underwear on the outside of the tights. There's just something about the whole Batman vibe that is cooler than Superman. But if you ask me the question, would you rather be Superman or Batman? I would definitely say Superman all the time. Because, I mean, frankly, if you are bulletproof and have lasers in your eyes, you can find ways to get cool toys. Um, I've wanted to be Superman, and I think all of us kind of want that. We want to be the person who's strong, we want to be the person who's recognized. We want to be the person who has success and people look you as a successful person. They pat you on the back and they say, good job. You know, teach me. I'll follow you. We want to be that person. We want to be the person of significance and influence and power and strength. Are we willing to be the person who gets their strength from elsewhere? Are we willing to be the person who in our weakness reveals God's strength? Are we willing to be the person who embraces the times of hardship and failure in our past and uses them as a springboard to bless others? Are we willing to be the person who embraces the pain and difficulty in our present and allows us to experience Jesus more really in that moment? Are we willing to be the people who embrace our own frailties and failings so that God's power can rest on us? I want you to say this with me. In your heart, as I say it out loud, my weakness reveals God's strength. My weakness reveals God's strength. My weakness reveals God's strength. Listen, I don't know what that really means for you today, and I'm not sure what kind of weakness or struggle you're facing now or what kind of weakness or struggle you're going to be facing. But I want to invite you into a world where you experience strength outside of yourself. And the only way that will ever happen is if we're willing to be like Paul and boast all the more gladly about our weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on us. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.